I'm Marty Moss Cohen, and welcome to The Connection. The imposter syndrome or phenomenon was a term coined more than 40 years ago by two psychologists. It described that distressing feeling that whatever you do, you don't believe you're good enough, you don't belong, you don't deserve the successes you have, and even worse than that, sooner or later you'll be exposed as a fraud is something that most people have felt at some time in their life, even very successful people. Award-winning writer and poet Maya Angelou wrote, and I'm quoting here, each time I write a book, every time I face that yellow pad, the challenge is so great. I've written 11 books, and each time I think, "Uh uh-oh, they're going to find out now. I've run a game on everybody, and they're going to find me out. That's Maya Angelou doubting her extraordinary talents. Well, today in The Connection, understanding what's at the root of feeling like an imposter, how we can counter that self-defeating conversation, we also want to dispel some myths about imposter thinking. There can even be an upside. And we have two guests who have joined us. Basima Tufik is a professor of work and organization studies at MIT's Sloan School of Management. And Basima Tufik, nice to have you with us on The Connection. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Also with us is Kevin Coakley. He's a professor of psychology and university diversity and social transformation professor at the University of Michigan. And Kevin Coakley, nice to have you with us on The Connection as well. It's nice to be here. In fact, Kevin, let me begin with you. We invited both of you on because you are have both have interesting uh, experience uh, and, and expertise when it comes to the imposter syndrome as we know it. Is this something you have personally struggled with, Kevin, yourself? Oh, most definitely. I have, um, you know, I've I've had a, a fair amount of success during the course of my career. But at each step along the way, I have certainly um, experienced and, 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 and really been confronted with imposter feelings. Um, I, I often tell the story of when I was a young assistant professor at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale and how I, you know, tried to present myself as a professor. You know, I, I made sure that I wore a coat and ties. I carried a briefcase. I was pretty young looking because I was straight out of graduate school. And so I really worked very hard to try to sort of um, demonstrate my my competence and my deservedness to be there, um, but I was certainly you know sort of experiencing positive feelings at that time. So the kind of inside outside of Kevin Coakley at that time, right? Yes. How about for you, Basima? Is this personal for you? Uh, yeah, I mean Kevin's story really resonates with me. I think for me, it actually started my first job um, as a consultant in which I was flying to all these different client sites and offering expertise that I was like, I'm not even sure I have this expertise (laughs) to give to you. Um, But it was, yeah, it really strikes often and early. Well, let's talk about this phrase or this term that we use, imposter syndrome. Uh, There are other ways to describe it. And it goes back to 1978, two psychologists basically coined the phrase and based on some of the research that they have done. To you, Basima, I think we should all agree on what what it is that we are talking about. How do you define what imposter phenomenon or syndrome is? Yeah, I think that's a great starting point. Um, So most people, when they talk about it today, I think people conflate it with things like fear or a lack of belonging. But what was really interesting is if you look back at the original work, Clance and Imes really described this this thought of being overestimated by others. So almost thinking, 
other people think I'm smarter than I think I am. (laughs) And so that sort of triggers potentially a lot of other thoughts, like maybe I don't deserve to be here. Um, Maybe I need to sort of act in a particular way to show people that I'm competent. So when I talk about it, I really think about that original thought. So I think other people think I'm smarter than I think I am. And one can understand how that could lead to uh, being afraid of being exposed or feeling like one does not belong somewhere. Definitely. I mean, one one thing is for sure about this. It is a very uh, anxious experience to entertain these thoughts. How about for you, Kevin? What's your working definition of imposter phenomenon or or syndrome? Um, My working definition is essentially the, the belief that one is is intellectually um, fraudulent. You know, it's it's the idea that that if one could sort of peer within the windows of one's soul, they they would see someone who really is not nearly as as smart or as capable or as competent as their actual accomplishments and achievements um, might otherwise indicate. And so it's it's the internalization of the belief that one is is really sort of like fooling people into being thinking that you are more competent and professionally uh, sort of, um, you know, sort of excellent than what you believe yourself to be. So it's about perceived intelligence. We're talking about how we think other people think that we, 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 how they perceive us and how we perceive ourselves. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I wonder to you, Basima, is if this, you know, where these, this conversation, I guess we're talking about kind of self-talk, where this conversation comes from, How, what, what is the, sort of at the root of, of this feeling of, of being fraudulent somehow? Yeah, so a lot of the early work sort of talked about this coming from your upbringing, sort of maybe the way that your parents talk to you. Um, but what I think is really salient for many people is that it often comes when you're facing sort of a new role or a new challenge or a new set of responsibilities. And during those times, it may be perfectly normal to be sitting there and thinking to yourself, wait, do I have the capabilities that this new role or challenge requires? So there's some reality to having these these doubts? Well, I think there's some reasonable rationale to having uh, sort of these thoughts, but whether it actually reflects reality is sort of a different question. Um, I mean, one thing I always try to encourage people who have these thoughts to remember is that, you know, somebody thought you were capable enough to assume that new role. Um, And so maybe those other people might actually have an accurate perception of yourself. And this sort of um, tracks also with this idea in psychology that sort of there's information asymmetry. Um, We know a lot more about our weaknesses than other people know about us. But maybe we're also overprivileging those weaknesses when we think about our own capabilities. Kevin, take us then inside the the sort of the the self-talk. When someone is feeling this, what are they saying to themselves? Well, they are, um, they are, they're, they're, questioning themselves, particularly when they compare themselves to other people. So, you know, you, you find yourself, so my, the context that I typically um, examine the imposter phenomena is in education, is in, in school settings. And I, and I look at college students for, for the most part. And it's, it's sort of finding oneself in a position where, you know, you're surrounded by all these incredibly uh, accomplished, intelligent people and, and then sort of 
questioning whether you are as smart, as intelligent as they are, whether you actually deserve to be in that same place. And, and those, those questions, that self-doubt uh, becomes especially pervasive, you know, if you find yourself in a situation where maybe you did not perform as well on, 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 on a test or something that you would have liked. And so you find yourself questioning yourself more and more frequently um, when you perceive yourself to be in the midst of others who are, you know, doing incredibly well and not, and not having any sort of academic um, challenges. But someone is always, Kevin, going to be smarter than us, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it is. You know, I tell, I no, tell go people ahead, that, go that's the, yeah, yeah. Go well, ahead. I tell people that's the thing that that you will always live long enough, and you will always encounter <laughs> someone who is smarter than you are, who has accomplished more than you have. <laughs> that's just a part of of being human, you know. And so, and we we need to learn to be okay with that. It's a kind of weird, Basima. It's a kind of weird perfectionism, isn't it? Yeah, I mean. What's interesting is there really is a high association between being a perfectionist and being someone who entertains these kinds of thoughts. So definitely uh, perfectionism is likely at play here. Kevin, I'd be curious if you agree. Yeah. What do you think, Kevin? I, well, I, I have quite, quite a bit to say, actually. I'm thinking about one of my earlier studies where, where I exactly where I examine um, perfectionism with um, imposterism and you know for those who may not be as familiar with the perfectionism literature um, scholars talk about two different you know sort of types of perfectionism you have what's called adaptive perfectionism and you have maladaptive perfectionism and the adaptive perfectionism is simply you know having you know high standards for oneself not unreasonably high but having high standards for oneself that one tries to meet um, whereas the maladaptive standards is, is having you know, unreasonably high expectations and standards for oneself that you, you can't possibly meet realistically. And what, what we have found in our research is that it's not the, it's not the adaptive perfectionism um, that's linked to uh, imposterism. It's the maladaptive perfectionism that's linked to imposterism. And, and, and that's something that we should take note of. Well, indeed. And I, I'm asking the same question over and over and rephrasing it slightly. But to you, Kevin, then where does that come from, that more maladaptive perfectionism that leads to the sense of being a fraud or an imposter? Where does that come from? Well, you know, that's an excellent question. I, I do um, go back to the original um, research by Pauline Clance and Susan Iams, and, and I really resonate with some of their early um, musings around, you know, um, the family influence, you know, the, what they sort of talk about, and they sort of put it within the context of, of, of women and young girls, they talk about the different messages that young women and girls receive from their families. On the one hand, you know, if, if, if these individuals sort of, you know, have performed well, if they believe themselves to be smart, but the messages that they receive from, from their family uh, never validates their intelligence, but always validates some other, uh, you know, attribute, you know, their, their looks, their, their social skills or something other than their intelligence, they began to internalize, well, maybe I'm not, Maybe I'm not as smart as I, hmm. I think that I am. Maybe I have these other attributes that I need to be more focused on because that's what my that's what my family is 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 validating me on. So you know you have that as one um, um, sort of influence, but then another influence could be the opposite, where the family is actually saying, "No, you are very intelligent, <laughs> and in fact, you are more intelligent than anyone else." And so things should come easy for you, but you realize that I have to work a lot harder. Um, to to accomplish the things that I've accomplished, 
And my family's telling me that, you know, I'm super smart and I shouldn't have to work that hard. And that causes some dis- some cognitive distance on your part as well. So it's these two different sort of messages that come from families that, at least according to Pauline Clance and Susan Imes, really sort of contribute to the imposter feeling. And those are the two women, the two psychologists that back in 1978 came up with this phrase imposter syndrome. But see, I mean, we're almost up in a break here. But d- does that make sense to you that that we're sort of caught between these two poles? I definitely think it makes sense. And I think uh, sort of the messages that that Kevin's talking about also continue outside of your sort of family situation, right? You almost enter into confirmation bias, trying to confirm what you're hearing. Meaning, just very quickly, confirmation bias, how does that factor in? So it's almost like you hear these messages early on in your life. And so you start to look for more information that supports those messages because that's what you're used to. And we're going to take a very short break uh, talking about uh, the imposter syndrome or the imposter phenomenon, imposter thinking. And our guests are Basima Tufik. She's a professor of work and organizational studies at MIT Sloan School of Management. Kevin Coakley is a professor of psychology and university diversity uh, and social transformation professor at the University of Michigan. We're going to talk after this very short break. In fact, in fact, we will play a clip from former First Lady Michelle Obama talking about her feelings of being an imposter. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen. Have you ever felt like a fraud that others overestimate your intelligence or your talents? Battling self-doubt and the fear of being found out as a fraud is stressful and common. We are talking with our guests about what the imposter syndrome is and where it comes from and, and how to confront it. Let me play a clip from former First Lady Michelle Obama. She's talking about battling imposter thoughts for much of her life in this uh, conversation that she had with The Guardian. This was back in 2019. She was being interviewed about her memoir called Becoming and about the feelings that she's had about not being good enough. That's a question that has dogged me for a good part of my life. Um, Am I good enough to have all of this? Am I good enough to be the first lady of the United States? And I think that many women and definitely many young girls of all backgrounds walk around with that question. But how I overcame that is how I overcome anything, hard work. So whenever I doubted myself, I, I, I just told myself, let me put my head down and do the work. And I would let my work speak for itself. Uh, And I still find that I do that. I still feel that at some level I have something to prove because of the color of my skin, because of the shape of my body, because of who knows how people are judging me. But Seema, there is so much there that uh, Michelle Obama talks about. But one is about women. And do you think this is unique to women? I know the original research uh, really looked at women. But how about today? Is this a, a more female phenomenon? I think in sort of popular conception, we tend to think about it as a female phenomenon, but across my research, which is also consistent with um, some recent systematic reviews that have come out, 
it not isn't necessarily gendered. So this seems to be something that affects people of across genders, of across races, and across occupational categories. Is is the experience the same? Is the expression the same across all those racial and gender categories, Basima? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think it's still somewhat of an open question. Uh, so my hunch would be. Uh, that people aren't necessarily expressing it to the same degree. So I do think that there is potentially this um, more uh, normative way or, or women feel more comfortable potentially sharing this vulnerability, perhaps due to the existing conversation that exists out there. Um, and men potentially are less likely to express this. Um, but in my surveys, I've found that you know, when given, you know, a pen and paper survey or an electronic survey, men and women are reporting having the same amount of thoughts or same frequency of these thoughts. Has that been your, your experience, Kevin? Yeah, well, let me um, sort of add that I, I, I do think that imposter feelings are gendered, but not in the sense of there being like significant differences in, in um, reporting rates of imposterism. So, it is the case that if you look at the literature, um, the literature is, is, is pretty equivocal. You'll see that there are some studies that report women um, having higher imposter feelings. You'll have other studies that report no significant sex or gender differences. In fact, I have found both findings in my own studies. But what I do think is the case is that I think it's gendered in terms of its impact. So, for example, you know, I have a study where I was looking at um, GPA as an outcome, and I found that... Great point with, average, yeah. Yes, great point average. And I found that with, with the, the men in the sample, um, imposter feelings had no link um, or predictive sort of ability uh, with GPA. Um, whereas with women, um, it, there was a direct and significant predicting, prediction of GPA for women. And so in, in that, but yet there was, if you looked at the mean scores, in, in this particular study, the mean scores were actually the same. Like they, were, they weren't different in terms of what they reported, but the implications were different, um, particularly with women. Uh, let me give you a chance, to, Basima, to, to pick up on that about um, the impact on performance. And then I do want to go back to Michelle Obama because I said she said a lot of things there that I want yes. to make sure that we do talk about. But just uh, picking up on what uh, Kevin was just saying there, Basima, about how it gets expressed by men, men and women and whether it shows up in performance. What have you found? Yeah, that's a great question. I think this might be um, a context sort of uh, consideration. So thinking about sort of school performance versus job performance. Um, interestingly, on the performance side, when it comes to job performance, there aren't any studies actually to show that it can have this this upside um, or downside, which is probably what we would think uh, is more common to sure. happen. Um, and so in my studies, for example, I don't find that it actually is detrimental for performance. Um, again, though, that's sort of a null finding, so I don't want to over-interpret the null. But what that sort of means is, you know, maybe this is actually isn't as bad for you when it comes to hmm. performance outcomes, which is often what we care about. I do want to pick up on that. Let me go back to you, Kevin Coakley, and, and again, going back to what Michelle Obama said. And she talked about, you know, being judged by the color of her skin, the shape of her body. I mean, this is a woman who's obviously lived in the, in the public eye uh, for so many years and continues to live there, but is dogged by these, these senses, this feeling of being found out somehow. Um, with all her success, she still feels that vulnerability. 
Help us understand that and how, how the racial part, I guess, factors in. Yeah. I, first of all, I, I love that clip. Um, whenever I give talks on the impossible phenomenon, that is one of the clips that I always play. Oh, really? Okay, that's yeah, good. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad. Very, We're on I'm, the same page then. I like that. <laughs> yeah, I'm very familiar with it. And no, it, the clip is powerful because it it in, introduces another element, uh, I think, for our consideration. And that is, I believe that that imposter feelings for minoritized people, for uh, people of color, are sort of racialized in ways that you don't necessarily see with with white folks. So, so for example, when you when you think about Michelle Obama, we're talking about an Ivy League trained lawyer. That's right. I Princeton mean, had, and you know, Harvard, right? Ex- exactly. And so she has clearly accomplished quite a bit. And yet, if you if you followed her career um, closely while in the White House, um, the amount of racism and sexism and and gendered you know sort of racism that she had to experience and endure was just daunting. You know, people questioning, you know, her her competence, you know, making comments about her looks, making all sorts of comments. And so it's a it's no wonder that she's had to contend with, you know, some of these feelings of self-doubt because she was just I mean, she was treated and I would argue she was treated in ways that that other first ladies were not treated. And I would say that's because she was a black woman. And so so when when someone like Michelle Obama talks about feeling like an imposter, it's, it's a little bit different than then a then white woman is sort of talking about feeling like an imposter because you have the right. the interaction of race and gender. So I think it's racialized in ways that are particularly unique for people of color. I had quoted uh, Maya Angelou in in my introduction, talking about how even as a as a, as accomplished as she was, she still felt like when she wrote her books that somehow she was going to be found out as a bad writer. She also said something else about. Um, uh, which I think relates to what we were di- what you were just saying, Kevin, about Michelle Obama. And my Angelou says, if a person, if any human being is sold often enough, you are nothing, you are nothing, you account for nothing, you count for nothing, you are less than a human being, I have no visibility of you, that person begins to finally believe it. And I wonder if I can get you, Basima, to weigh in on that as well, which is, yeah, there there are things that, that we tell ourselves or maybe other people tell us that really aren't 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 true to who we really are but when you have society or when you have individuals if you're caught up in in racism um is it a different kind of experience because people are actually saying these things to you you don't have to say them to yourself because the world is saying it to you yeah so i definitely agree with kevin that you know, there is this intersection between race, gender, and these imposter thoughts, right? It's really, really important to consider who is the person who's having these these thoughts and what might be the different sources that are compounding the experience or potentially affecting the outcomes that may emanate from having this experience. Um, So, you know, thinking about Michelle Obama, um, her, you know, when she's saying, hey, I think you know, maybe I don't deserve to be here. Or, um, maybe I don't have the ca- capabilities that one would expect in this particular role. She is thinking about all those times in which someone has told her that she is less than or not good enough, um, potentially due to the color of her skin or the gender that she holds. Um, and so I think what's really interesting about all of this is we're getting to this point where the experience of imposter thoughts is not straightforward because you really have to consider the person and sort of the institutions that they're they're facing and sometimes, you know, institutionalized racism, for example. Sure. 
Let me just quickly uh, reintroduce the two of you. That's uh, Basima Tufik. She's a professor of work and organizational studies at MIT's Sloan School of Management. Kevin Coakley is a professor of psychology and uh, diversity and social transformation professor at the University of Michigan. And we asked both of them to join us today on The Connection to talk about that feeling of being an imposter, and it's something that I think most of us can relate to. Well, Kevin, let me just sort of finish up a little bit. If we're talking about the impact of race and racism on this feeling of being an imposter, how does a person deal with that? How do we as a society deal with that? Well, <clears throat> that is an in- interesting question. And, and in fact, you know, you may be aware that there is a groundswell of, of thinking that that actually says that imposter feelings um, are due solely to oppressive environmental sort of experiences. Um, so th- in other words, they would say that if you were to rid the environment of racism and sexism right. and, and all forms of oppression, that, that minoritized people would not experience imposter feelings. And I, I am sympathetic to that view, though I don't necessarily agree with it in totality. I, I think that that imposter feelings can exist even outside of oppressive experiences. Now, that being said, to to answer your question, I think that the onus has to be placed on institutions um, and not simply or solely on on the um, individual. In fact, this is one of the the biggest critiques and criticisms of the whole imposter phenomenon sort of discourse, that there's so much focus on the individual and all the things that the individual needs to do that – people would argue that, no, you need to be focusing on the environment and the institutions mm. that, that, that are transmitting these problematic messages that are being internalized. So I, I, would, I would argue that, that there needs to be more systematic efforts to making sure that environments are more conducive and welcoming and supportive of, of folks so that they aren't having to contend with these you know, problematic messages. Well, but Seema, talk about the work environment and how it can either, you know, support <laughs> an environment that is open and accepting and, and one that can really feed this feeling of being an imposter. Definitely. Well, first, I want to say I completely agree with, with Kevin that one of the things when you talk or one of the things to remember about this phenomenon is most people do put the onus on the individual, that it's the individual who needs to manage or cope with these thoughts. Um, and I sort of you know, in my research, want to also move away from from that sort of discourse and really highlight again, yeah, there's there's a work environment here, and this work environment is contributing um, to the development of these thoughts. Um, so, you know, I think being really concrete when you get a promotion, um, I think it's really really important for um, you know your supervisors or others in the company to make it very clear why you've gotten this promotion to really highlight sort of the abilities that you do have and why they believe that those would translate um, rather than sort of making the individuals start to have to you know put the dots together or connect the dots uh, in terms of why they are in the position that they hold. Let me just make a weird tangent here and Kevin go to you do. Children feel like imposters. Do we know? Excellent question. Um, <laughs> in my, in, that's not in my, my experience. <laughs> and children are not very good fakers. I'll just put it that way. Yeah, you know, interestingly, there hasn't, to my knowledge, there hasn't really been any good, you know, empirical research, you know, at a very young age um, that I'm aware of. Um, Seema may she be she may be aware of, of some research, but. I am not aware of any research that has really examined imposter feelings at a very young age, and that's something that we <clears throat> we definitely need to explore. Yeah. So just, I don't want to, you know, so I don't I don't want to sort of suggest something that that's not supported right. by by data. Yeah. What about you, Basina? 
Yeah, I, I'm with Kevin on this one. I, to be honest, I've never gotten that question before. So I've, I've never thought about whether children <laughs> experience these thoughts. Yeah. Um, I do think, you know, it's a product of socialization. So it might take a while for these thoughts to develop. Mm-hmm. Let me read a Facebook comment. This is from Fran. She says, I was an adult when I got my f- my physical therapy degree and felt like I won the lottery. I had imposter syndrome before it had a name as I was the first in my family to get a college degree. I love my work, retired after 35 years, but every now and then to this day, I occasionally feel like I got out before I got caught. Sounding a lot like my Angelou there. <laughs> um, but I wonder too, and Basima, let me put this to you in, in terms of People that are, say, the first to get a college degree or perhaps the first to have a, you know, so-called professional job. Does that sort of feed into people's either insecurities or, or feeling that they might not belong? I think that's really consistent with this this idea of a new role or new experience, right? Um, and I think what's also interesting and in what you're bringing up here is there's also a, a new culture involved, okay. um, right? You're seeing someone go from a culture that they may not be as familiar with to suddenly they have to enter into a very professionalized uh, world. So I definitely think, yeah, that that's a huge factor in, in sort of developing these thoughts. And Kevin, I wonder how common that is for people who are the first in their family to go to college, which is a really big deal. It's a giant step uh, for a family and for an individual. It, it is very common. And in fact, what you're seeing increasingly on college campuses is programs that, that target first-generation students are increasingly looking at um, imposter feelings among first-generation students for the very reasons that you are sort of um, hinting at, that when you, when you are, you know, the first in your family to, to go to college, and I don't care what your, your sort of ethnic or cultural or racial background is, you are going to likely encounter, you know, some, some feelings of self-doubt because you don't have anyone in your family who has, who has been there who can kind of like show you the rope, so to speak. And so you go there and you, you are surrounded by people who perhaps, you know, are part of lineages where their families have gone to college for, for many, many years. And so it's, it's quite natural for a first-gen, first-generation student to, to be experiencing imposter feelings. And that's a, you, you're seeing that increasingly on college campuses. And the question, do I belong here, right? Exactly. It's that existential question, do I belong here? And it's important, again, going back to, you know, not p- putting the onus on the individual, but on the environment, it's incumbent upon, you know, schools or, you know, workplaces to make sure that their environments are communicating messages that say, yes, you do, in fact, belong here. You wouldn't be here, you know, if we didn't think that you have what it takes to be successful. Basima, is there an upside to imposter feelings? Yeah, so in my research, I really focus on trying to develop a more holistic understanding of this phenomenon. And so uh, I have a set of studies, for example, that sort of traced having these thoughts to actually being seen as more interpersonally sensitive by Hmm. others at work. So, for example, in the study of doctors in training, I found that doctors in training who held more frequent imposter thoughts were actually seen by their patients as more interpersonally skilled. Hmm. Why? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So um, I also was really interested in figuring out what's going on here. How are how are people with imposter thoughts being seen as more interpersonally skilled? 
And what I found is that people with imposter thoughts seem to subconsciously take on this other oriented um, sort of orientation. So what that means is, for example, these doctors who were having more frequent imposter thoughts were actually engaging in more other oriented behaviors. They were nodding a lot more. They were making better eye contact. Um, It was even simple things like when they asked a question and the patient was giving responses back to them. They were sort of putting their pen down to really signal that they were engaging in active listening. And this seems to be the case in sort of other sort of behaviors. So for example, in a study of job candidates who were uh, sort of entertaining a pre-interview coffee chat with a prospective hirer, uh, they seem to ask more questions during these chats. And as a result, hiring managers saw them as more interpersonally effective. Well, you know what? Let's take a very short break, and then we'll get back to our conversation. We are talking about imposter thinking, and that's uh, Basima Tufik. She's a professor of work and organizational studies at MIT Sloan School of Management. Kevin Coakley with us as well here on The Connection, professor of psychology, also professor of uh, diversity and social transformation at the University of Michigan, much more after the short break. We'll be right back. This is The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moscow-Wayne talking with Basima Tufik and Kevin Coakley about imposter thinking, why we undermine ourselves. Are we too perfectionistic? Is there an upside to feeling like an imposter? And we'll also be talking about what we can do to build confidence. Basima, picking up on what you said right before the break, that actually people that feel like an imposter maybe what? work harder to overcome it and so seem more interpersonal? Is that what your your research has found? Yeah. So the underlying sort of theory is that we're almost compensating. So when I have imposter thoughts, I'm thinking, hey, other people overestimate my competence. And I'm thinking, hmm, I don't really want people to discover that maybe I'm not as competent. So what am I going to do? I'm potentially going to sort of trigger my charm or sort of turn on the charm um, and potentially sort of hide the fact that I may not be as competent as I think. Um, but really, this seems to be, again, a very subconscious process. So when I asked, for example, doctors or um, employees to indicate, you know, were you purposely being more other-oriented, you don't really see any differences. Hmm. And interestingly, this actually also ties to to a point that was raised earlier. Um, and Kevin, you talked about sort of the early socialization messages One of the messages that people, when they're younger, tend to get um, that we think sort of leads to the development of these thoughts tends to be something like, oh, you were successful because you were really charming. So it wasn't that you're actually really smart, but that you're really charming. So we seem to have this sort of natural bifurcation in our minds that there's sort of two domains that we can succeed in, whether it's interpersonal or sort of competence-based. Well, Kevin, even picking up on on, uh, Basima's research there, I I could imagine the opposite, which is rather than, in a sense, working harder, that you get afraid. You know, you you pull back, you you decide, you know, I don't want to take this risk, or maybe I'm I'm not good enough for that job promotion or, you know, to apply to an AP class, something like that. Oh, yeah, that no, that absolutely happens. I mean, people will not sort of pursue opportunities for which they are imminently prepared and qualified to do. But let me, if I, if I may, if I sure. could just sort of, you know, add something here. I, I have to be honest, I, I get a little nervous when, when people start talking about the, the benefits of imposterism. I, I know that 
that I understand sort of like the the the, the argument, the logic. Um, but you know, for, for me being trained as a as a counselor psychologist, and obviously I, I I focus on mental health quite a bit in my work. What what we find and what we know is that that when people, you know, sort of when they have these imposter feelings, and and as Michelle Obama, you know, says later in that clip, she sort of contends with it by by working hard and by working harder, um, you know, sort of proving herself. But what oftentimes happens is that that people do that. And there is a, a cost. There is a there's a emotional psychological cost. I mean, more studies than I can care to count always sort of link these imposter feelings with increased feelings of anxiety and depression. Hmm. There are physical costs as well. And so I, I would I guess I, I would just caution people to to just be be aware that while there might seemingly be some upside to having imposter feelings that, that show up <clears throat> in in actual performance there's an overall well-being cost that I don't want to be minimized in this this conversation. And what you're describing, Kevin, and, and, and Basim, let me give you a chance to respond, is this, these can be very painful feelings. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I completely agree with Kevin that one thing uh, when highlighting these upsides is that it's really, really important to highlight there is this intrapersonal downside, right? That we do feel more anxious. Um, but one of the things that's really interesting about the existing research is, for the most part, it's predominantly correlational. So what that Meaning? means is when I'm reporting my imposter thoughts, I'm also self-reporting to what extent the, do I have burnout or do I have sort of anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is imposter thoughts has a sort of negative connotation, so we're likely to report higher responses on other scales. And so what I want to, the reason I'm saying that is one of the really important things here is to figure out, well, is it causal? That is, if you Mm -hmm. sort of induce people to have imposter thoughts or prime them to have imposter thoughts, is that necessarily going to sort of result in these negative well-being downsides? Um, So I can tell you, consistent with what we know correlationally, yeah, if I induce you to have imposter thoughts, you are going to report higher levels of anxiety. But what's really interesting is getting at the question you just asked about sort of, um, you know, working harder. What does this actually mean? So I have some some current work. um, It's a working paper that really shows actually this, this interesting thing, which is in companies. So if I go out into the field, I go into a company and I ask someone, you know, to what extent do you have imposter thoughts? And then I sort of look at their effort later on, um, as well as ask them to report burnout. You do see this sort of correlation again. So this is association between people reporting higher levels of imposter thoughts and higher levels of burnout. But then when I try to replicate this effect causally, so I, for example, brought in undergraduate students, I induced some of them to have imposter thoughts and some Mm. of them not, and then they were sort of exposed to different levels of role overload. What was really interesting is I saw that those with imposter thoughts actually sort of rose to the challenge, and they didn't necessarily report higher levels of burnout. So this sort of raises this really interesting question um, that I think we're all grappling with is to what extent are imposter thoughts actually sort of leading to burnout or to what extent, um, maybe a different way of putting this, to what extent are the sort of intuitions we have about this that, oh, if I have imposter thoughts, I'm necessarily going to feel bad about myself. 
to what extent does that actually affect sort of real outcomes from a performance standpoint or from an interpersonal standpoint? But I again say all of this with an important caveat here, which is we shouldn't minimize the interpersonal. That is, you know, mental health is really, really important here. Sure. And the takeaway of saying, hey, there's, there's upsides doesn't necessarily mean, hey, we should, you know, induce this or even encourage people to have these imposter thoughts. Indeed, indeed. Kevin, I, I, we could go on with this, but I'm going to toss something else at you. But I wonder whether for some people, feeling like an imposter might be true. I mean, it might be that you, you really aren't, you know, prepared or you're not in the right job or maybe you're at the wrong school or, you know, all, all the things that people do. Um, maybe it's true. You know, I am so glad that you asked that question. Um, I, I think that there's something there that we don't I don't think it's comfortable to allow ourselves to to think about that. Right, right. But 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 there is some truth there. You know, maybe it is the case that. You know, maybe you aren't as prepared as as other people. That that could be factually correct, and and that could understandably be contributing to your imposter feelings. I mean, you know, and that's okay. I mean, if that's sort of the, the situation that you find yourself in, it's okay to to acknowledge that. Um, and you know, and I think that we need to be okay with sort of talking about that as well. I, I think where it can become difficult or problematic is when those discussions start to be linked in unhealthy ways to like social identities. So again, when I'm, when I'm thinking about a, a, a college context and when I'm thinking about sort of outreach efforts to, to diversify colleges and, and maybe you're, you know, you're recruiting students who are coming from under, you know, uh, under resourced schools. And so they get to a, a place like the University of Michigan or to MIT or to some other main, you know, sort of prestigious school. Sure. And they might find themselves, you know, like underprepared, you know, maybe they didn't have the certain opportunities that other students had. And that becomes, a, you know, they realize that once they're there. Does that mean that they don't have the capability to do well? Absolutely not. It might mean that they need some extra work and extra support. Um, and, it, and it's OK to acknowledge that. Well, I'm, I'm glad you you, you um, fleshed that out for us. Let me play another clip. And it's interesting. We ha- ha- Our clips are really from famous people, uh, many of them, or two of them actually actors. This is Andrew Garfield in an interview with Backstage Live last year. He, of course, was a star of Tick, Tick, Boom, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, Spider-Man. And he explained that p- imposter feelings are with him constantly in his work. Literally every time I go to work, that that part of me, will just kind of like slowly emerge from the deep waters of my unconscious like a sea monster and is just ready to 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 remind me how how I should give up and how I have nothing to offer and how I'm empty inside and how dare you even try you're going to embarrass yourself and you that they, they'll find you out you'll never work again and you'll never be able to go out in public you know it gets extreme um and it's every time and it feels like there's no I, I tried to extract it from my process, but it's maybe the most important part to know that I'm gonna go through that every time. I, I, I love that clip actually, Basim, if I can get a response from you, which is that you know, here he is a very accomplished actor. He has these feelings every time, but he knows they're gonna be there. And so and and he impersonates them rather well, I have to say that monster that <laughs> that appears. Um but is it sort of part of sort of knowing, uh-oh, here we go again, 
does that help us sort of mitigate some of the the anxieties that we might, that we might have? Yeah, well, I'm I'm hearing two things in in that clip. So I'm I'm hearing sort of yeah, I, I'm getting it every time I'm in a new sort of um, you know new day at work, and I'm also hearing sort of how he channels it to be motivational in right. some respects. Like, um, you know, this is going to push me to to keep trying. Um, and I think both of those things are at play. I do want to emphasize, though, that that sense of motivation, it's not coming from, you know, a, a, a good place in some no. respects. It's <laughs> no. coming from this, this thing that, hey, I might fail. Um, but, you know, he has been very successful. And one thing I do want to highlight is when we talk about this phenomenon, we do tend to hear about it from very, very successful people. Mm-hmm. Well, let me play another successful person. And Kevin, I'll give you a chance to respond. This is actor Viola Davis. She's won an Oscar. She's won an Emmy. She's won two Tony Awards. And she here she is talking to Oprah Winfrey in a 2021 interview about why she feels like an imposter despite all of the awards that she has won. Let's give it a listen. Well, the imposter syndrome follows everyone. I, I don't care. I mean, I I feel like it's sort of a false narrative if I said that you know, every time I get an award, I just walk off the stage and I feel like the boss. I feel like it's affirmation. But real in reality, those three words keep playing over and over in my head, which is, and now what? You start the next ah. job, you get on that set, and for a minute you feel like you're just starting all over again. They're going to be found out that you're not as good as people think you are, uh... You you have um, an added responsibility, an added visibility. It's fear. It's something that's deeply human, I think. Kevin, is it fear? I think fear is involved, certainly. Um, you know, fear, fear again, that, you know, you're going to supposedly be, be found out to, to, to be fraudulent. I mean, so fear is definitely involved. You know, that clip that you played is, is, is a good clip. I, there's another clip where she talks about is shortly it was the day that she won the oscar and and she's interviewed and one of the things that viola davis talks about is this sort of idea of of, of being sort of self-deprecating and and yeah. and and not being comfortable with with one success and she she talks about how it's important and it's okay to to embrace one's success and and for her that was something that she had to sort of learn how to do um she, too often you know she would attribute you know her success to to external factors and and she wasn't comfortable acknowledging that you know what i am a good actress <laughs> i have done quite a bit I, and i deserve the accolades that i have received and so she had to learn to become comfortable with that and to not always be self-deprecating. So she doesn't say it in that clip, but she says it in another clip. And I just wanted to kind of point that out as well. Yeah. I mean, being comfortable with, with not just awards, but with, with compliments, right, Kevin? Exactly. And oftentimes and I, it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> no go ahead, Basima. Well, and I think that's why we also tend to see that these thoughts sort of dissipate with time. So, you know, if you look at sort of the correlation between these thoughts and age, you tend to actually see that it sort of goes, you know, essentially becomes less strong, less strong of an association. And I think what's really going on again is people are starting to recognize that, hey, you know, maybe I was really successful. <laughs> maybe I can attribute this to me. 
Well, I sure hope Michelle Obama feels that sometime soon. It's just, it's almost like heartbreaking just to hear her struggles. And I appreciate her honesty about it. Mm-hmm. We have a couple of minutes here. And, and Kevin, I just wonder, you know, I do want to help us, help us, help us become better at, at being confident in ourselves and feeling good about ourselves. What should we do to take better care of ourselves so we don't feel like imposters? Well, I, I will I will talk about the individual strategies while noting, as I said earlier, that the institutions have responsibilities as well. But sure. while we're talking about individual strategies, there, there are a few things that I typically sort of recommend. First, it is to not suffer in silence. And what I mean by that is that oftentimes people who experience impulsive feelings don't feel comfortable sharing them or talking about them with others, particularly if you are in a very high, stressful, competitive um, environment. Um, you don't want to, you know, give people any sorts of um, ammunition, so to speak, to that will, you know, sort of harm you or disrupt your position. But what I tell people is, is that you should not suffer in silence. You know, find a trusted confidant, talk to individuals, because more than likely what you will find is that they have also experienced and maybe are currently experiencing those impossible feelings. So it's important to to talk about how you're feeling with other people, um, particularly if, if they share some sort of um, social identity by which you all can sort of um, commiserate. So that's one thing. The, another thing that I tell people is to be intentional about documenting and reflecting on your successes. You can do that by, you know, keeping a diary. And every time you do something that's that's remarkable, that that is an accomplishment, that is of note, just document it. Wow. And, you know, maybe do it Do it every couple of weeks, maybe do, do it, you know, once a month, and then revisit that because sometimes we need to remind ourselves of the accomplishments and achievements that we've actually had because we, we tend to minimize them. And so in being intentional in documenting it and then re- revisiting it will remind you that, you know what, I have done good things and I deserve <laughs> to own it and embrace it. Basima, I'm going to give you 15 seconds. Anything you want to add to that? Sorry about that. Yeah, I would just add, um, you know, I I also hope that sort of highlighting the interpersonal upsides will help individuals recognize that, you know, it's okay to have these thoughts sometimes and and maybe sort of take away some of the stress that comes with these thoughts that, hey, maybe there actually could be something good that comes out of this, uh, even if I don't feel great in the moment. Well, my thanks to both of you for joining us uh, today on The Connection. Basima Tufik, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. And Kevin Coakley, thank you for joining us on The Connection as well. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. To find out more about The Connection, uh, to get our newsletter, go to whyy.org slash The Connection. You can also follow us on Facebook. You can download a podcast of the show. You can email us at theconnection at whyy.org. We're also on Instagram. Diana Martinez, the engineer for today's edition of Radio Times. Excuse me, there I go again. The edition of The Connection. Debbie Builder, senior producer. Paige Murray-Bessler, producer. I'm Marty Moscow. And thank you so much for joining us.